Hello everyone, welcome to Empathic Futures Lab, the show about designing human-focused futures for the environments we live in. I'm Chris. And I'm Christian, a little bit under the weather. Uh, Alright, hopefully you're not coughing too much today. Hasn't seemed like yeah. it. Uh, Alright, so to today with the holidays and everything, we don't have a um, whole big theme planned out. Uh, what we do have, and actually kind of excited about it, is kicking off the new year. Um, the new 2018 year with uh, these this article we found nine big design trends and I think these are a lot of industrial uh, industrial designers talking about the trends for 2018 but I think a lot of these are applicable for uh, what we're interested in in terms of human focused futures as well as our expertise in space design uh, architectural design and just to see where these things go um, from sort of this non-industrial design standpoint. Uh, anything yeah. you want to add to that? Um, I think it's interesting that you pointed out that it's a lot of industrial designers talking about this and how that might intersect with what we want to talk about, which is human-focused uh, design, I guess, at an architectural scale. Um, because you, you can, we read, I read through this whole article and, you know, there's nothing once mentioned about any architect, no. <laughs> but um, they they do talk about industrial designers a lot, and it just sort of, you know, maybe humans in architecture, it's just not synonymous in any way. Yeah. I don't know. I just thought that was kind of I mean, funny. I mean, you would think it is, but maybe it's just the profession. I, I, I don't really want to archibash right now, but yeah. maybe it's just too reactive or uh, too one-dimensional, two-dimensional right now right. for what we're trying to do. Yeah, and, you know, it just it just goes hand-in-hand hand with industrial design, I think. It lends itself to it. Right. When you have to actively design for the human body, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. All right, so uh, shall we get into it? Yeah. This is a long read. Long read. All right, so we're... We'll, we'll post it with the show notes, I yeah. guess, probably. Yeah, the link will be in the show notes. And we're also splitting this into two parts, so... Uh, first part... Um, first point, revolution in user-friendly politics. Um, so what that is, is this integration of design thinking uh, principles or user-centered approach to political campaigns, basically. Um... So I guess it's just the idea that uh, it's designing how politicians and their campaigns interact with their users. I don't know how much of a direct correlation there is with space design with this one in particular. Well, let's maybe think of one. All right. So I thought that this was interesting, that the focus of this little blurb was about campaigns and politics. Um, because... I mean, I don't know how much of politicking time is spent campaigning, but I can't imagine it shouldn't be the majority, right? <laughs> but um, one thing that I th thought it might come out of it, something like this is that you could, um, when a politician's campaigning, for instance, if, if there's ways in which we can utilize data or information to analyze cause and effect, of you know an incumbent candidate or or a politician uh sort of see their effectiveness ratio over the course of their political history or something like that um does that make it any easier to vote or 
you know, make a good choice in terms of who should be a politician. I don't know, but right. So basically, it's, you're it's take, just an additional thing. Right. So you're taking it in terms of releasing information to the public or releasing releasing histories to the public in a more factual or yeah, making it more readable. I guess yeah. making it meaningful, easy, easily digestible. Yeah. Um, Whether or not all politicians should be ranked essentially i don't know if that's a great idea but it'd be kind of interesting i think well i mean there's certainly a there's certainly an amount of sort of this i voted for this and he voted for that or she voted for that or don't vote for him or her because of their past but i guess unless you're willing to look on all these websites that sort of track the government you're gonna have to not you're just gonna have to take it at face value and, and until you go deeper. But that's also true of a lot of things. So, I, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, the one thing I was thinking about with this, uh, where I was thinking this might go, is um, where how, how can we apply this sort of user friendly uh, polit- or user friendly interactions to how we evaluate architects or. Not necessarily their spaces, but maybe how we, how you, how we evaluate architects or how we market architects to their constituents. Um, huh. Yeah, uh, or or designers in general it doesn't have to be architects. Um, well, capacity to meet goals or whatever. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Maybe something like that. Capacity huh. to meet goals, or uh, well, it, it's about interactions, right? It's not necessarily about the politics of it all. It's about design thinking principles for interactions and i think inherently as designers we do that in how we design our presentations but um outside of maybe the principles of the company or some of these sort of uh, client facing people um maybe i don't know how much we are ever taught to do that and then uh, certainly our clients aren't necessarily taught to evaluate us that way It's interesting. Well, it's not something that you really... I mean, you maybe get a little bit of it in school. Um, yeah. Just learning how to present something. Um, I don't think I was ever required to take a public speaking class for school, but, you know... So we sort of just got that on its own. Yeah. Sort of through... Through, uh, through design critiques and whatnot. Yeah. All right. So... I don't... I, I never... I didn't really get where this one was going. Yeah, it seems like of everything, I, I guess I understand that of everything that's been sort of designed a lot, or like, I don't know, what, what's a verb for integrating design into something? Maybe politics is one area where it hasn't been integrated well yet. I think that might be true. Yeah, and you know, and there's politics behind that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, um... I mean, there are things. There's like third parties that do things, and so I remember leading up to the most recent presidential election, you could, you could take a quiz and answer a bunch of questions, and it would sort of align you based on your values with whatever candidate uh, aligned similarly or most similarly. And um, so there's that, which is really interesting, and in, in how it helps you make the decision even faster. It makes something that's relatively difficult. Now, if we had that for every candidate. You know, you just fill out one one profile, and then it gives you back um, sort of who you align with. And then, you know, as you said, you could also apply that to something like an architect. 
as well. Yeah, that'd be kind of interesting. And then there's also that website that had the really great graphics and everything continually running. Which one and is New that? York, New York Times did as well, but yeah. Um, talking about that. It was it was a couple numbers, I can't remember. Oh, 538. Okay, yeah, that one. Nate Silver's thing, yeah. That's always fantastic. He does good work. And it, it's probably still running, it's just different things at this point. I, I think he's always tracking some sort of political thing. He got yeah. what his claim to fame, I think, was was predicting all the states in some election. Something along gotcha. those lines. Yeah. Alright, should we well, move on to the next one? Uh, unless you have anything else to add. Not really. I think we got very deep with that one. <laughs> yeah, let's go yeah. To the next one. as deep as can reasonably be expected out of uh, out of that. Uh, not that it's a bad idea or, or inconsequential, but maybe one of the less space. It's just really focused. Yeah, very focused. Yeah. All right. Uh, inclusivity will go mainstream. Uh, so the what on that won't. So basically, they're saying that we won't be able to design for one size fits all or for like most people we will have to design for every person or all people um so accessibility to those of various abilities um and then one question they posed is uh, where do we start with this where do we how do we know who to design for first or, or where do we begin our our search for that well i mean i this is i feel like this is one of these ones that probably shouldn't even be on this list it's, yes. It's not a. It's not yeah, a no. current trend at all. I, I, I mean, it's it's a current it's a current trend. It's not a future trend. I guess it's. I don't it's know. Something that's been happening since. Well, I kind of disagree with that to the extent that yes, we have these ADA standards, but even these ADA standards are designed for most rather than all. Right. It's a standard. Well, sure. Right. It's 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 uh, the parking lanes need to or the ADA stalls need to be what like. 12 feet wide uh, or something ridiculous like that in some states or, or it's eight feet wide and you have some lane uh next to it which you know makes sense right you you design a wide lane for a person in a wheelchair or you have uh, well, 18 inch side on the side of the door or uh, some of these things i agree that's true um but things like that with the ada accessibility code as well as you know you can you can go to some tourist area and find a store that's designed that everything in there is designed for people that are left-handed, right? Yeah. Uh, so you get your scissors and whatever else. Um, but it's that's those are based on the same philosophy that this is based on that um, you know everyone has their intricacies and nuances to themselves, their personality, and who they are physically. Um, that it's it's this is nothing new. Yeah, I guess um, you know putting putting your feet putting the wheels to the pavement. I guess maybe, but like actually getting it done and actually personalizing things for each person. Um, I mean, that's not even necessarily new either, because you get targeted advertisements and everything. Right. That's probably the most uh, realistic version of that we have of this yeah. digitally right now. Yes and no. I think and and how I took this when I first read this, I was like, okay, well this is sort of this industrial design centered uh, piece. And, and I was like, well, architects to a certain extent um, or interior designers or people who design buildings already sort of do this, right? We have our ADA standards. Um, but the more I thought about it and the more I read into this, this section of the article, 
it sort of reminded me of that of our last two discussions on standardization and mass individual individualization, right? Uh, and I think to that extent, if we push it in that direction rather than an accessibility direction, but in sort of this customization of per user, I think that's where it becomes a new trend. Uh, and, and when we're saying that, yeah, we're not designing for most people, we're literally designing for all people. And that's not one chunk of the one chunk of, chunk of the population is uh, able-bodied and one chunk of the population is not able-bodied. It's everyone literally is different. How do we design for literally everybody? Right. But I don't think, there's nothing new to that philosophy. I think maybe doing it's what's gonna be new. Okay, that, that might be fair. But I, to a certain extent, I think it is sort of new. Just because uh, to what I mean, era? Maybe from the '60s or the '70s. Yeah, but even you look at all these postmodernist movements like deconstructivism and, and the, sort of this parametricism, where it was just kind of blobby and uh, not necessarily parametric, is how we might think of it right now. I, I don't know if it's necessarily new or not, or if it's necessarily old or not. I think it's designing for literally everyone is this sort of new version of parametricism in a way. I think my my perspective on this is that I I agree with you. It's a sort of new parametricism, and it's it's accessible to us now as designers because we have a larger amount of information or that we can aggregate together and uh, analyze meaningfully uh, than we did before, uh, and that's because of the. You know, pervasiveness that the internet has become in terms of capturing your data, you know, okay. everything else that goes with that, in my mind. But. Okay. I mean, fair enough. It, it definitely, I think, it is true that some of the the true true uh, revelations or revolutionary concept in this is execution. That I, I definitely think that's true. Um, is it a good thing? <laughs> this is a discussion that we've had a lot, I think. Yeah, I, now that that I think that question sort of leads into these next topics, actually, that are on the list. Uh, so maybe we should just move on. Oh yeah, yeah, maybe we'll look at this next one. A whole new field will be born: artificial intelligence design. This one I thought was really kind of getting at something really similar to what we were talking about with one of our recent podcasts. Um, it gets it gets into I think it gets into this idea of, of our AI being able to explain itself and being able to account for its decisions in the ways that we would probably be able to as people. Um, what did I What did I write? I wrote down a lot here. Um, they they get into industrial design a lot in this one as well, which oh, is yeah. kind of. Definitely. Do you have any? Did you have something you wanted to bring up about this? Well, not really. I, I mean, I, I think that, like everyone, they're sort of biased towards their own skill sets and saying that they're super well, uh, super flexible, and their abilities right. to think about the human-centered uh, design is, is definitely necessary. Um, and, and, yeah, the, perhaps that's true. I think from what you've told me about your experiences taking a industrial design studio, sure, perhaps they spend a little more time thinking about that than an architect would, but, or someone, another designer like that would, but 
I don't think that's necessarily 100% true. I think uh, architects could definitely become, or designers just in general, if you think about the world or choose to think about the world right way, could become an AI designer. Right. Yeah, I don't... I. I, I might walk back on the statement I made earlier about industrial design because if you think about industrial design as a field, I don't I know nothing of the history, um, but it's it's called industrial design that and it, like those words inherently have nothing to do with people really. You know, it's it's designing industry, which is for masses. To say that industrial design now has become a field that is focused on individuals, maybe the name of the field should just change. Yeah. Honestly. Anyway. Um, if, if this is what they're supporting. And in that same guise, I guess, I would I would think that architecture should be more rooted in designing for people and individuals than industrial design, but maybe maybe it just hasn't gone that way. Right. I don't know. Well, okay. And, and I think maybe the true, really, the true unfortunate part of how this was written is that it's it's driven us to talk about the various design fields as in one is not labeled correctly and the other one is labeled incorrectly or thought of incorrectly. Well, it's like two thirds of this piece here, which is the longest piece in this, not in this article of nine different pieces is just talking about why industrial design is the best suited to design artificial intelligence. Yeah, no, I, it is a bit ridiculous for sure. And, and to a certain extent, it's probably some sort of marketing piece for whoever wrote it. Not to, not to like call them out in that way, but it's kind of, kind of how it reads to a certain well, extent. I mean, there is a lot of interesting things that are said and there's a lot of, well, this is an interesting statement. Artificial design, intelligence design stands to become the most exciting design practice in the history of humankind. That's a bold statement to make. Yeah, but I don't. I don't necessarily think it's untrue. No, I don't necessarily. I don't think necessarily think it is either. But does he mention anything? Why? No. No, I, th- I think that's up to the reader to really, or or for us to dig yeah. into. <laughs> um, I, mean, I, I think. The reason it's so interesting, um, or at least to me and in in my view why maybe they find it so interesting, is that AI AI in general has been talked about so much recently as this sort of humanity killer, and and maybe it's sort of this present uh, present biased goggles that we're wearing, and maybe every generation goes through this. Oh, it's going to destroy humanity, uh, but there's been so much made of. Uh, the ability of AI to outthink us, to replace us, to subjugate us, to really completely change what it means to be human, uh, that it, it sort of takes on this greater importance than some of the other design professions or design fields have in the past. I think it's partially that, and also partially because of, to me, what makes technology so interesting, or one of the reasons technology is so interesting is that it's not just a product on its own, but it's sort of this facilitator of knowledge between disciplines. And I think AI to a greater extent than some of the other technology in the past will force all these design disciplines and not even design disciplines, but all sorts of academic and professional fields to work together uh, in, in a greater way than ever before. 
just due to the nature of how it works. Yeah. Um, because it's so it's so front loaded, right? You're designing an algorithm. You have to load it correctly in order for it to spit out something correct. You have to put in good data in order to get good results out and in order to design that algorithm and give it good data, you're going to need this hugely you, you multi You have to design team. the relationships. Right. You have to, you have to, the person that's designing the relationships between the data sets, that's, I think, you know, that's, in my mind, that's really what this AI design thing is talking about. It's the person that decides how information relates to each other and then ultimately uh, how decisions are made from that. Right. I, I think we talk about architecture, and it's probably true of industrial design and um, graphic design and uh, advertising design to a certain extent. It's probably true of all these industries that it's rather reactive to cultural trends uh, versus, to a certain extent, some of these computer designs have been, or computer design fields have been a little more proactive in creating their own trends and powering culture powering society and, and, and maybe AI design will be like the most proactive of them all because you just inherently it has to be proactive right it, yeah you have to you design have to, it you have to give something in order to get something right right it's not like I'm going to do a little bit of research on what's out there the context that I exist in and, and I'm just going to spit something out it's you do do that but you have to do it to such a degree that you have to understand it for so long because you're designing a system. You have to think ahead as well as think in the past and think right. across so many disciplines because it's such a interwoven system that we don't even understand what's going on inside of right. it. Right. I guess that brings up a question. If we're talking about human-focused future, um, when, you, when you're designing how an AI relate or how an AI, you know, either gathers information or understands information, um, and it takes in so much, you know, data sets from all sorts of different disciplines and areas. Uh, how do you, how do you have a supervision over that? As um, how do you govern uh, how it's how that impacts, uh, I guess, human relationships and interactions. I guess I guess what I'm what I mean to ask is that uh, I'm trying to form this question right now. Um, does just giving it more and more and more information lead to a more human-focused future, or not? Like, let's say you know I can have all the information that I want about a certain intersection. Let's just say there's cars, there's people walking. There's all sorts of restaurants. There's all sorts of different activities going on, all which describe human activities, emotions, responses, etc. But does that does adding up all those uh, quanti- all those quantitative sets of information actually you know help focus uh, help <coughs> you know benefit a human focused future, or do you think that just because we're designing an AI to understand relationships that we still need someone to oversee and guide um, guide the decisions after um, after that AI has output something we still need someone you still need a person focused on designing that future I think I think you hit 
that question there really hits the hits on why AI design is going to be so important in the future. Right. Right. Because, yeah, how how do you design this? It, it's sort of this nascent field, as they're saying, that uh, these questions don't have answers. But I think anyone who spends enough time thinking about AI will kind of eventually land on those questions unless they're kind of uh, not to knock on engineers because they're doing their job. But I feel like that's that's why we have designers to a certain extent is because there needs to be this balance in the dialogue between just coding and creating algorithms and kind of getting sucked down that rabbit hole and then kind of pulling back and looking at more of the philosophical questions or the the broader like discipline as a whole questions um, and I think that's where the AI designers come in right okay maybe right, I guess my, my question really stems from this last sentence here uh, they are our best bet and our best equipped people on the planet to tackle this complex task of making AI that is safe and good for humans. So my question is, is AI going to be safe and good for humans or is having people governing it making it safe and good for humans? I think it's a little of both. I, I don't think you can separate that. Um, okay. Because to a certain extent, it's... AI is going to learn from itself. AI is going to be this sort of self-feeding system of, um, what do I want to say? It, it, it's going to teach itself over time, right? So it, in, in and of itself needs to produce results that are good for humans. But on the same time, on the back end, humans need to be curating inf or selecting information, weighting information, uh, maybe not waiting information, maybe the AI does that and it's pattern finding, but humans need to be able to discern what information to give it and how to give it that information, uh, as well as kind of look at the results and decide if those results are useful or not. I think it's, I think it's a back and forth, but uh, maybe we'll find out differently in the future once well, it sort of matures as a field. I think my apprehension here with this question is that there, the AI, that its objectivity, let's, let's say it's an objective thing, right? That its objectivity um, towards people, unless, unless we're weighted differently in terms of its decisions, but its objectivity towards people means that it's not safe and good for humans, it just exists. It just is, right? It doesn't, it doesn't care one way or another. Yeah. Yeah. Outside of outside of the rules you give it, which are just rules for it, they're not they're not like a social weight or um, right. It's pattern recognition, meaning duty, right? Or like some responsibility or duty. It's just it's it's just a rule that exists for it. I guess I guess that's my question. If this if this is just founded on a fallacy to begin with, uh, uh, maybe it's sort of the. Uh analytical side of me talking but i think there's something to be said about pattern recognition and relationship analysis and and really figuring out what's there what's what's driving these things that happen and um i think as in that ai article we read there's you that's where like the doctors come in in that asthma uh example that they gave where they're right. saying that the care is better for asthma patients, therefore there's a survivability factor is greater, therefore the computer weighted it as a less dangerous case. 
Uh, and I think that's where having this team of designers needs to step in and recognize these deficiencies yeah, in the data. Um, definitely needs to be there. But at the same time, I don't necessarily think that AI being completely objective or completely anal analytically based is uh, is a huge detriment if we recognize that it is that it is that way. Um, well, that's that's what I'm getting at here is that this article assumes it assumes that we're designing an AI that is not just analytical and objective. It assumes that we're giving it some sort of empathy or something. Well, maybe it's maybe it assumes that the AI as a whole, or yeah, the real, the system that is the AI, and the system maybe includes the designers of the AI who are human. Um, maybe it, it, it assumes that that as a whole has empathy uh, versus just a singular AI is not good enough because it doesn't have that understanding right. and a human on its own is not good enough because there's not that analytical power so maybe it's assuming it's a sort of uh, it's, it's assuming the hybrid then right, it's assuming the hybrid, saying. I think so I, Okay. I don't see how it I think by saying that AI design is a new field, it, it must imply that there's a hybrid. Okay. I don't think you could have either or. I would hope so. It's just, to me, the reading of this was like people are designing something and then they're done. Right, right. Um, well, which I don't think is the right way to do it. I mean, that might be sort of, well, I don't know. I, I guess that'd be the question is like, how does Google do it? How does Facebook do it? Are they they must be constantly tweaking their algorithms, right? Yeah, I would um, hope so. And constantly tweaking and retraining and tweaking and retraining. So is is that sort of what the article is assuming in in the hybrid? Is that it's a constant? Uh, the AI itself is sort of this dynamic thing that's not static, um, and people are constantly tweaking it, and maybe it's constantly tweaking itself at some point. Well, my my guess would be is that, you know, before rollout, before something rolls out, you go through a really intense period of testing and tweaking, right? Yeah. And then after you roll it out, you kind of let it live for a while, and then you tweak it a little, and then you live for a little while, and then you tweak it a little. But it doesn't have this one-to-one -one, uh, relationship or many-to-one relationship that the inclusivity thing sort of gets at where the AI is um, augmented per individual based on another person's uh, expertise, right? I don't know. I think it could be. I think you can associate information with people and still be relatively private in, in the extent that, yeah, I don't know. Maybe you can. Maybe someone will figure that out at some point. I, th I think you can, though, because the AI is essentially... Uh, it's an aggregator of information, right? So it'll be pull, or at least my understanding of it is that it'll be pulling information into the server, and then at at times it's needed, it constantly has this pattern or like these end results, and maybe it, it'll say based on the information that I have for this person, you need this, or you need to do this, or you need to change your routine here, or you should, right. or whatever. Um, but I don't think one AI database is limited to one AI decision. I think you could have five million heads of this AI all querying the same database if there are enough 
ports or enough bandwidth for it to to access this data at the same time. I, uh, I guess it's... I imagine that's, that's how Siri works or how Google Home works. Because I can't imagine that these right. Google Home devices are all individual AIs. They must be linked to a central database. Well, I guess my question wasn't necessarily whether or not there is multiple uh, intelligences, but rather there is someone that is overseeing each person's experience of that intelligence. Oh, well, I think, I think if you're an AI designer, you're designing the system, right? So you, hopefully you design a system that allows for a large variety of people to be able to have custom experiences. Uh, I hope so. Uh, yeah, I, I think you're even starting to see the kind of you're starting to see the baby steps of that in these Google Home devices, where it already has access to your Google account and it has access to your to your the way you speak, so it recognizes voices and recognizes uh, where you work. Right, and that's great and all, but it's just all AI. There's nothing more to it than that. No, I think. I think that's where it's probably important to have all these people on the back end and designing a really good system at first, a really robust system, a really human system right off the bat. Right. But then do you need someone that is like one person, you know, is supporting 400 people per day, you know, or whatever, you know, whatever the number is. Well, what would do this need... person do? I mean, that's not just like a, we're talking like, an experienced curator or something. It's like an architect or whatever that we've discussed before. Like, does this person exist that interacts with the artificial intelligence to manipulate your experiences? Um, is a, sort of a subscription service that you could sign up for, maybe? I um, yeah, maybe. Like, is, is there someone that that you know on on the back end after after rollout or whatever? after someone's done a really good job designing the system, can there be someone that comes in and then augments the system per individual? Right. I think that's probably where it comes down to, uh, probably it comes down to what information is available about how the algorithm works. Cause this person would have to be able to tweak your inputs into the algorithm or what gather multiple outputs but, and curate it that way. Sure. But why wouldn't, you want if Google has that information already, why wouldn't Google hire these people to do this and get another subscription service? Maybe Google will. Yeah, why not? Why? I mean, Google might. It, it allows people to have more individualized experience, more challenged experiences, whatever. Well, and it, have for it, and then it allows you to feel more connected personally, I guess, or something. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I guess maybe it depends on how much you value that sort of personal touch, like literal personal touch rather than uh, personal touch meaning a customized experience. I mean, that's what this whole thing is based on, This a whole new field, artificial intelligence design. Like, sure, designing the front end, but we also got to be cognizant of the back end. I mean, like, what happens after rollout? Yeah, no, I think it you're just, right. It doesn't just sit there. Well, and maybe that's maybe that's part of this whole idea that artificial intelligence design is a new field. Maybe that's part of the reason it's so exciting is that because it's because it's not just one thing. It's that's there's 
just kind of like UX design right now in tech is this really ambiguous term that's like that could mean sort of this back end user experience or the front end user experience or anything in between the visual user experience. AI design could be any of those things. Maybe it needs to be AI design with a specialty in something. Maybe that's where it becomes so fascinating. Uh, Yeah. Maybe we should move on to the next one. Okay. I think that was pretty good discussion. Was, yeah, I think so. We're at 36 minutes, so. Oh my gosh. All right. Wow. Uh, you want to introduce the next one then? All right. So the digital is disappearing. Um, and so whether that means people care less about it, people are more interested in physical environments, or digital is becoming integrated with the physical environment, I think this sort of encaps- encapsulates all of that. Right. And I think one thing I want to add to that, I think that the article brought up that was really interesting uh, is part of this. Part of the reasons that this is happening, per the article at least, is that A, there's sort of this uh, worry worry about screen addiction that's taking over. Uh, Part of that's probably the older generation still not getting used to screens. And part of that's probably the younger generation just kind of like real or being self aware. Uh, but yeah. whatever it is, little of that. And then also one thing that I thought was really interesting is talking about how um, the design of services, uh, as is probably uh, relatively obvious, it's all based on touch points, right? Where do you touch or interact with the user? Uh, but one thing that they brought up was that touch points, at least since maybe like 2007 with the advent of the iPhone, have been mainly screen-based or digital. Uh, mm-hmm. But with the sort of proliferation of internets of Internet of Things, you know, with like mobile networks becoming faster and more reliable, sensor technology and microcomputers getting small enough to ha- and fast enough to handle all sorts of appliances, it's sort of this decentralization of these things from your phone into appliances that were otherwise dumb. Uh, right. Therefore, it's more physical than digital than it than it had the ability to be in the past. It was a really cool Internet of Things thing that I did not really interact with, but I saw a lot of once, not too long ago. What? Last year. What? Is the is the cool bracelets that you get at um, Disney World? It's like your ticket and like your food oh, stamps yeah. and I don't know what they call it, like a magic wrist wrist wand or something. Right. I don't know. Kind of like but, swipes you in. But they're so neat. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's just your. You know, it's just a microchip, basically. It's RFID, probably. Right. Um, oh, yeah. You just walk around, and it's you. It's your identity for that week or whatever that you spent $4,000 to ride some rides that are going to shut down when the power goes out. No. <laughs> it just happened today. But, I mean, oh, really? I think that's a great example of this. And I love my Google Home Mini that I just got. Like, I, I didn't even realize. I just started touching the side on accident and apparently that changes the volume oh okay <laughs> um do i have anything actual to say about this digital is disappearing thing i'm like yeah it's cool you know integrating things into the physical things that we already have that's great let's right. do it let's right. do more of it well okay so here's all. here's one thing that i was thinking about right so we spent a lot of time uh talking about digital digital sort of experiences and and we're coming from the background of architecture right so it's not really our not really our, our i don't know what do you call it our field or no it's not our it's not our default our it's not our default field 
but that we're really just sweet spot right. We're <laughs> we're talking about it, right? But um, I I wonder. I question how much other architects are talking about this, and the reason I bring this up. Well, I guess they're talking about that in terms of like BIM and uh, right building information modeling or how it influences construction or other coordination with coordination process. with yeah process or construction oriented technologies uh, rather than experience oriented technologies uh, like we've been discussing at length here. Um, but the reason I bring this up is to a certain extent have architects sort of missed the boat on the digital world. Um, at first, I think we were a little concerned about that. Uh, this Empathics Futures Lab started out as a project called Fidgetal Space, right? Embedding digital and fidget, uh, physical together to be fidgetal. And then sort of this frameworks initiative before we came up here. Um, but we were so concerned about whether we were missing the boat on the digital world. But if digital is disappearing and it's becoming more physical, is this kind of, you know, are, is architecture or other physical based designs sort of backing into this new world, right? <laughs> are we like kind of falling? Driving in the rear. Yeah, right? Falling, <laughs> fa falling butt first into this opportunity <laughs> that if... Tripping if, our way right into... Right, it's, it's like a second chance to get a hold of this digital revolution. And we kind of, hopefully, will take it by the horns and actually use it. Unlike kind of missing... I, Maybe well, there's a reason I mean, we missed the boat on the digital experience, but hopefully we don't miss this one, right? Well, I mean, yeah, the thing the thing about it is, is you know, sensors and crap and, you know, AI, it, it's all cheap, right? Maybe AI isn't inherently cheap. <laughs> AI is not cheap, that's pretty. <laughs> you, have, you have to pay for a lot of data to put into it, and it's not like you're going to have a bunch of interns go out and collect all the information for you that you want, which is supposedly good. Um but you know the sensors and everything's cheap, and so if we can just embed that and embed intelligence and memories and ideas and experiences into physical objects, and you know the opportunities are endless in my mind, as sort of we're looking at in this cool little uh, story that we're doing. Like there's so much that you can do with it, and it's it's really pretty fascinating, and just being able to make all these digital experiences that we have, giving them a physical nature, like that's that's where architecture should be right now. I mean, in in my mind, like there's a there's a lot that we can do with that, and it's really exciting and really fun. Yeah. So just jump in. Yeah. No, we should jump in. It's it's going to be like, huge. It's going to be huge, right? It's going to be like huge. The form of this Google Home Mini, it's so great. Like, look at this thing. It's, it's got a little orange on the butt. It's it's just a it's a pebble. It's like something that you would throw in the water and see if it skips, but it talks to you. And I mean, the AI. I mean, its capabilities are limited right now, but it's it's really pretty neat. And the right. amount of stuff that you can connect it with. Like I could I could tell Google to turn my light up to. 50% right now, and it would do it, and that's pretty neat. That's pretty awesome. But, I mean, it's also stupid. First world problems. <laughs> yeah, it's really dumb. Like, there's a lot better things we can do than just turn lights on and off, and we're just on the surface. Oh, yeah, we're on the surface of where we can embed sensors, what we can do with embedded sensors. Uh, or even, I don't did you see... Just intelligent material. Intelligent that's material, sure. Material that has intelligence. That can build How itself. How exciting is that? Yeah, oh, that'd be awesome. 
um, that would really solve a lot of the issues of flexible space, right? What do I need yeah. this space for? Well, let's just make it smaller, or let's make it glow. Um, let's make it remember something. Right. I don't know if you let's saw uh, right. recently it came out released that Magic Leap came up with uh, or released what their AR goggles are. Yeah, I that was pretty freaking spectacular. Basically, they've kind of started actual AR as opposed to VR, like actually overlaying digital yeah. objects over physical objects, and it actually works. Um, well, that's the thing. That's the question that this <coughs> this article brings up is like, is that enough, or do you like? Great, you have the you have the digital visual, but do you also need something physical? Is it necessary? I think it's necessary. You, you want need to a touch physical things. presence. You want to touch things. Touch things. Touching things is so great. It's like yeah. this underrated experience. But like, right. we're not and underrated. So has, under has under thought of experience. Has Magic Leap missed the boat? No, I think like, you have to have... I think having both. You have to have both. You okay. have both. You, have, you don't have to have both. Obviously, we've gone through, what, million years of evolution without both. But I think you can have both. And it can be great together instead of just kind of okay. Right. Just well, well, you know, it's, it, we're in such the early times of the technology, we don't know the best way to use it yet. Yeah. Right? And we're trying to approximate a computer or putting physical stuff into, but it's not physical stuff, it's virtual stuff. Well, what's the next thing? What's the next thing as opposed to recreating the physical world and the digital world? What is the digital world actually? Like, maybe that's the next thing. I mean, the digital world can be expressed through physical things. Yes. Too, not just digital overlays. And I think that's, I mean, there's a lot of things where you see people sort of using their hands to manipulate a field of points, which, you know, do something to a ball that's in those field of points. And right. that's sort of a digital representation. Right. It's a physical representation of a digital analysis really right but it's sort of this like smart object in a sense right so yeah so as architects we have to be or designers of space and experience we don't want to miss the boat because that's sort of in our realm it's physical as much as it's digital right and industrial designers and object designers and industrial design yeah we just can't be reactive to this trend yeah um, all right all right. I think that was a good little discussion. Yeah, I think we can wrap it up now. We're at 46 minutes. Um, uh, it's like our longest one yet. <laughs> yeah, well, that's exciting. All right, so the other five uh, other five trends, do you want to go over them real quick? Just say what they are, give a right. kind of a teaser so, uh, for the, next time. The other five ones. First, we'll start with, we'll finally move beyond flat design and extend this conversation a little bit about uh, physical design in the digital world. And then we'll talk about... Um, this will eat our feelings and talk about Reese's peanut butter cups and chocolate and stuff. And then AI will turn the world into one big Uber map, which sounds cool. And then, uh, finally we'll finish it off with this last one. What value means to brands and consumers will change. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. A little more philosophical at the end there. Yeah. All right. Well, we probably should start there. All right. All right. Yeah. Well, cool. Uh, that's another exciting riveting episode of hopefully the riveting alright thanks for listening we'll see you next time peace peace